0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 2nd of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme, Kiev prepares to host a historic summit with potential membership of the European Union on the agenda. But will that actually happen? Then to Paris, where Israel's leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, is holding talks with his French counterpart, Emmanuel Macron. And after that, we'll hear from Monocle's Andrew Tuck, who's here to give his own verdict on a Supreme Court nuisance ruling that could have huge implications for the public realm here in the UK. Plus,
1: we'll take a sonic trip to Southeast Asia. Fernando, where to this week? Savadi, Tom. Today we explore the wonders of the Thai pop charts. Grab a napkin, you might cry.
0: All that and more besides ahead, here on The Briefing, with me, Tom Edwards. First on today's show to Kiev, where EU officials are descending on the capital ahead of a historic EU-Ukraine summit. The key question remains just how quickly the country might attain full membership of the bloc we're here to unpack what might lie ahead is reporter anastasia halushka anastasia good afternoon to you thanks for being with us um just tell us what exactly is on the agenda it's a historic summit taking place Uh, presumably the ukrainian part of the delegation will be very eager to move that conversation about eu membership forward
2: uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, well, the summit in the next couple of days, I don't know if it actually deserves quite the stir that is surrounding it right now. Obviously, EU membership is a big thing on the list, but I think neither Ukraine, the Ukrainian leadership, nor the Ukrainian people have high hopes for this. The message, of course, is one of positivity and let's move forward. But I also don't think that the EU itself is ready for Ukraine membership right now. Obviously, with the country still being in war, if that is ever going to be a realistic feat, it's going to be after the war has ended, which doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon. And even then, still we have questions with regards to other countries, a long list of countries like North Macedonia, uh, Montenegro, that are still in talks with the EU and after years, still haven't attained uh, full membership. I think for Ukraine, this meeting is going to be more about EU support Um, about sanctions against Russia and about the possibility to obtain fighter jets and other heavy weaponry to keep that uh, stream of support flowing to Ukraine.
0: Uh, Well, yeah, let me ask you in a bit more detail about that. Plainly, uh, there'll be lots of clamour for um, more clarity from the EU as a bloc in terms of its responses and its planned manoeuvrings to counter Russia's war uh, against Ukraine. Do we have a sense, um, Anastasia, of what specifics uh, may be on the table in the discussions which will be taking place in Kiev?
2: Um, I know that Kiev in the in the last couple of weeks there's also been a huge stir about the tanks, more specifically the Leopard 2 tanks. Uh, Germany, under huge pressure, I think at a certain point decided to uh, give permission to send those tanks to Ukraine after all. And I have to say, for me as a Ukrainian being there on the ground, I have not seen that level of enthusiasm. Um, from the Ukrainian side, as a response since the first HIMARS were sent, now the next step uh, is obviously the fighter jets. More specifically, Ukraine is looking at the F-16s because they're mm. being slowly. Uh, there are a lot of old models still circulating in the EU that are being slowly phased out and replaced by the F-35s. Now, um, I know that Poland is uh, currently, has a lot of uh, experience as well with the F-16s, Belgium does, and the question on Ukrainian side will be slowly to, you know, you're going to be phasing out these weapons, these fighter jets anyway, let us have them, transport them to us, hand them over to us. Because the Ukrainian, uh, right now, the big thing lacking in the Ukrainian military uh, is specifically fighter jets. We're currently more or less set with tanks, although that's also a temporary thing, because obviously tanks get lost in the battlefield, get destroyed. Um, But the F-16s, if Ukraine wants to launch a successful counteroffensive, it is going to be a very necessary um, element of that counteroffensive.
0: Absolutely, that's one to watch closely. Um, Just in terms of broader cooperation, and these are often the kinds of pronouncements and undertakings that are secured at meetings of this kind, if we look at things like longer term plans, uh, Anastasia, commitments in terms of reconstruction, uh, ongoing relief efforts, um, looking at areas like connectivity, energy provision. Presumably, it's critically important for Ukraine to get really meaningful undertakings from any number of EU counterparts uh, on issues and matters like that. Is there an, an anticipation that this sort of summit can deliver real specifics when it comes to those kinds of commitments, not just broad brush ambitions, but really detailed plans? Is that maybe too much to hope for?
2: Um I might be wrong but I'm not I'm not uh, majorly optimistic about very specific details that will be uh that will be solved during this summit I know that Ukraine is pushing um for a plan to, to use seized Russian assets for reconstruction in Ukraine i don't know or i am not aware how how enthusiastic the eu will respond to this mm-hmm. i think that is um uh, also on on a legal level it is a much more intricate and difficult operation to 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 actually uh implement but uh with regards to reconstruction the eu doesn't seem very keen or willing to be in charge or to be paying for the total reconstruction of ukraine we're talking about I think the last number was in the hundreds of billions of, of dollars uh, on Ukraine's reconstruction that would have to spend. And obviously, the war is still ongoing, so more damage will uh, happen to Ukraine. Um, right now, I think for Ukraine, the most important feat is to keep their economy going, and for that, they will need sizable Um, help from the EU it seems that there are some conversations on the way of what the EU can offer Um, and obviously there have been uh, additionally there is that issue that has been coming up in the past couple of weeks with regards to corruption in Ukraine but uh, all these legal mechanisms right now still have to be constructed in such a way that both the Ukraine and the EU Uh, can be happy about what the what the results will be and where that money will go so for me personally i don't see anything significant uh coming out of the next couple of days
0: no indeed and sometimes it's almost the theater of just having the summit there in the capital Uh, that's an achievement in and of itself i I guess given the straightened circumstances the country is still
2: still still under thing about this summit is that it's there in Kiev and, and the huge uh media presence uh or the media focus on that event. That's what, what for Kiev and Ukraine is the most important because obviously after a year of war they still need the European public, the Western public to be engaged, to be interested, to be following this war. So I think that is the main the main goal of this event.
0: Absolutely. Um, great to have your insights, uh, Anastasia. Thanks very much for being with us on the programme. That was Anastasia Halushka. Uh, now, let's cross over to Monocle's Carlotta Ribello. She's standing by with the day's other news headlines.
3: Thanks, Tom. The Philippines has granted the United States greater access to its military bases amid mounting concern over China's increasing assertiveness in the region. The cooperation allows Washington key positioning to monitor Chinese operations in the South China Sea and around Taiwan. Spain and Morocco will hold their first bilateral summit in eight years today as they seek to strengthen economic ties and diplomatic relations. Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez and 12 members of his cabinet will meet with their counterparts in Rabat to sign as many as 20 agreements to boost trade and investment and bring the two countries closer together in areas beyond migration. And Hong Kong leader John Lee has unveiled a promotion campaign that will include 500,000 free flights. The Hello Hong Kong campaign launched with dancers and flashing neon lights in the city's main convention centre beside its famous harbour and aims to lure visitors, businesses and investors back after more than three years of tough COVID-19 curbs. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Tom.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Carlotta, as ever. Next up on the show, to Paris, where Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is holding talks with France's President Emmanuel Macron. The two leaders have said they'll discuss the international effort to stop the Iranian nuclear programme. Well, joining us now on the line with more is the journalist for Haaretz in Tel Aviv, Alison Kaplan-Sommer. Alison, good afternoon. Thanks uh, for being with us on the programme. Always a pleasure to hear from you. Um, Tell us a bit about what's on the agenda then at this meeting. Clearly, uh, the the nuclear programme, addressing it, ensuring there's a coherent international response to it, is going to be at or very near to the top of the list.
4: Definitely at the top of the list. Hi, good afternoon. Um, it's definitely at the top of uh, Netanyahu's list. That's his. Uh, that's his priority. He, as you know, was a fierce opponent of the um, of the uh, JCPOA of the uh, the nuclear deal agreement with uh, with Iran, which uh, President Donald Trump pulled the United States out of. But the European community uh, remains engaged in, and um, uh, Netanyahu will certainly make the case that uh, Iran has ignored uh, some of the uh, the limitations that were uh, involved in that uh, in that agreement and that it has uh, already crossed the red line and uh, will be urging macron and other European leaders to be uh, to be tougher uh, on Iran he'll also trying to be uh, strengthening and expanding the Abraham Accords as much as he possibly can uh, and for macron's part who recently called Netanyahu after some terror attacks in uh, in Israel over the weekend condemning them will do as much as possible I think to push him in the direction of uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace steps, even though it's going to be a little bit symbolic, mm. because knowing that Netanyahu is tied to this far-right government, this far-right coalition, um, and that uh, one cannot expect any movement in that direction.
0: Well, we yeah, I was going to ask you about this, Alison, because one of the things that strikes me from an, a, an outsider's perspective is that you, one imagines leaders like Macron, sort of imagining that they're gearing up for you know the, the the next Israeli leader and we keep always seeing Netanyahu returns again and then the background dynamics shifts as you say he's now part of this you know kind of even more uh, hardline uh, right wing administration i don't know how how does macron navigate this we, i thought some of his uh, remarks were interesting this slightly sort of torturous thing he's offered french solidarity in the face of terror but then has apparently underscored to netanyahu the need to avoid measures likely to feed the cycle of violence. I think that was the sort of delicate, mealy-mouthed way he he put it. How does Macron deal with the fact that it is Netanyahu again for the nth time back in the sort of negotiating chair?
4: Yeah, I mean, and you can contrast that with the previous prime minister, uh, Yair Lapid, when he uh, visited Paris uh, last summer, in which uh, Macron was very, you know, not mealy-mouthed and and, uh, (laughs) open-mouthed, saying that there was no alternative to a resumption of political dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians, and that he would mobilize the international community in its favor. So you can look at how he's kind of walking back his enthusiasm for the peace process with Netanyahu, because he knows that there's basically zero chance of anything happening. But a really important factor that has to be noted that we inside Israel are engaged with 24-7 is a fight against draconian judicial reforms that Netanyahu is pushing with full steam ahead that would basically eliminate the power of Israel's Supreme Court and give the government leaders, a.k.a. him at the moment, Um, full ability to do anything without the judicial uh, branch standing in its way. People are calling it a judicial revolution. Some people are calling it, you know, a coup and um, he's getting being delegitimized heavily Within the country, so these foreign trips are a chance for him to say, "Look, I'm still going to be respectable abroad, even though I'm pushing through these reforms um, that are so uh, that are so difficult at home." He's also meeting in France with economic leaders because in Israel, people are making the argument that if Israel votes itself out of the family of liberal democracies and goes into the club of Poland and Hungary and other more populist authoritarian regimes, that it's going to uh, have. Very hard uh, economic damage. And so uh, Netanyahu is going to be looked to be posturing while he's in France to show that that's not going to be true and that uh, Israel is still on solid economic footing.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you a bit about the, the international sort of diplomatic dimension here, Alison, because again, it strikes me that as a possibility that. Netanyahu doesn't maybe mind uh, a focus on this this kind of slow burn Iranian nuclear program conversation. Indeed, he may not mind a focus of some of Israel's international partners on the recent violence because precisely because it distracts from what is probably a more consequential domestic discussion, which is as you say the these reforms. I mean, is that is that a slightly simplistic way of looking at it or do you think there's some truth to that? Actually, he he doesn't mind that there's this focus from without.
4: No, he's a, it's a realistic uh, focus. He wants to be viewed as, uh, you know, defending the security of Israel and fighting against outside enemies. And as much time that he can talk about the Iranian threat and that the threat of terrorism to Israel, then that is, you know, time that is not going to be spent discussing these very controversial reforms and the very controversial members of his right-wing ruling coalition who say some very, very extreme uh, things that uh, that the European leaders are completely opposed to. And uh, and he's got some some characters in this in this coalition in this uh, in this government who uh, you know until very recently were persona non grata in Europe and and were, were fringe figures. Uh, none of them you know are are going to uh, be traveling there themselves in the near future. So he is trying to establish the legitimacy of this extreme far right coalition and some of the controversial. Um, uh, steps that it's taking and uh, putting a, a positive veneer on it by being received uh, in European capitals and being seen again as the defender of Israel security uh, during these meetings.
0: Uh, Alison, I don't know if you were listening when we were hearing from uh, Anastasia uh, about the Ukraine situation. Just in terms of Ukraine, it is interesting. Obviously, you know we know about Iran and its role supplying certain military hardware, drones, for example, to the, the Russian side uh, in, in Ukraine. Th- there are suggestions that Israel may uh, drop its sort of stance of neutrality, consider more explicitly military aid for for Ukraine. Do, you, do we know what uh, prospects there are of movement on that? And again, how does that fit? into the sort of uh, the way that Netanyahu is trying to portray himself overseas?
4: Well, it is definitely uh, it definitely had a chance of moving the needle with the previous government, the involvement of Iran and then this new uh, Russia-Iran axis uh, when it comes to using the weapons. Um, Netanyahu has always been a staunch uh, uh, has been staunchly arguing that because of the need for security on Israel's northern border, he needs to maintain uh, a calm relationship with Putin and with, uh, with the Russians. In order to uh, in order to guarantee Israel's security, but this you know ent- entering the equation of Iran, he's also uh, said that anything that has to do with Iran, uh, Israel needs to stay strong and oppose. So he hasn't really spoken out on it yet. He hasn't uh, uh, set out a clear Ukraine policy on it yet. His foreign minister said, "We can't talk about it. We just shouldn't talk about Ukraine at all." Um, I would say that you know if it wasn't Netanyahu who has had such a warm relationship with Putin, that absolutely Israel would be moving much more clearly in the direction of outright support, AKA military support to Ukraine, which is thus far refused to supply. Um, But, uh, but Netanyahu has not weighed in on it uh, yet. And I think he's going to probably delay trying to take a clear, uh, a clear stance as long as possible. A lot of this, I think relies on Joe Biden on the white house, how much American pressure is put on Netanyahu and uh, or on Israel to, uh, to offer more support and more help to Ukraine Uh, So that's going to be, I think that's going to be the factor, because clearly there's Putin pulling in one direction and it depends how much Biden decides to pull on the other.
0: Yeah, really interesting stuff. Alison, uh, terrific insights. Thanks, as always, for being with us on the programme. You're listening to The Briefing here on Monocle24.
5: Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work, providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead from a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online.
0: You're back with the briefing on Monaco 24. Now, for a story a little closer to home, for us here in London at least. After six years of controversial legal battles, the UK Supreme Court has ruled that the residents of luxury glass-walled flats opposite Tate Modern's viewing gallery here in the capital face an unacceptable level of constant visual intrusion. Well, to consider what this might mean for London and its residents and its developers, we're joined by Monocle's editor in chief and urbanist in residence, it's Andrew Tuck. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Um, now, this has been rattling on for a while, and I imagine
5: our listeners probably know uh, the, the the sort of bare bones
0: of the story. But just remind us, kind of how we how we got here.
5: Well, Neo Bankside is this, as you say, a, a rather smart development of. of as we would call them luxury uh, flats or apartments on on the south side of the river thames smack bang behind Tate Modern, this converted turbine hall that was made into this extraordinary museum. Now, the museum extended over time and, and it took the decision to build a, a viewing deck at the very top of the extension, which just so happened when it opened to peer into the apartments. So the people who bought the apartments, their argument was that we, we bought the apartments in 2014. You're op- opening the viewing deck in 2016. How would we know that you would be just um, just, just feet away from our windows? that people would be able to look into our apartments. Now, the the case was brought by um, four apartment owners of five people, but uh, you would imagine that other people in the buildings uh, certainly had some uh, views about what they thought should happen. And we've had... It's gone through various court hearings, and it's finally gone to the Supreme Court, the highest court here in the UK, who have overturned two previous rulings, and in a three-to-two majority have said, actually, we side with the people... In the apartments, which has come as a bit of a shock to everybody. Mm.
0: Well, yeah, and I think the, the fact it was telling that it was a three-two split. So even this ruling wasn't exactly uh, uh, unanimous in its in its in its findings. I've seen lots of clever headlines, I guess inevitable, and I admire them as a former sub. You know, people who live in glass houses can throw stones, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But this is the problem, isn't it? Because people often said, "Well." you move into an area predicated on precisely these cultural riches, the dynamism of the place, but then as soon as you get there, you say, actually, we don't want those people and we don't want those views. We want our view unencumbered. And they've refused to do things like put up a nice set of curtains. And people are painting this. Is it a bit to oversimplify as a bit of sort of, you know, the haves and the, the have-nots? Where, where, do you, where do you stand on that, Andrew?
5: Well... <laughs> You know, you can read the papers this morning, and it's certainly riven with you know views of class and snobbery, and you know that wealthy people shouldn't have uh, any right to make up, uh, make a fuss about this because you know they're going to take away the view from tens of thousands of people, whereas they're just a, a small group of people. So. But I think you do have to kind of try and unpick just the class aspect. Certainly, reading some of the the more left wing newspapers this morning, you know, they feel that nobody has any rights at all if they're wealthy, and that you know it's just for the majority. So I think it's, it's tricky. And, and what the the judgment says is actually, if if a, another apartment building had been built in front of them, where people could view in look into their apartments, you would imagine there'd be some kind of like. Balance. Everyone would have been a bit cautious about looking into each other's windows, and so that wouldn't have been uh, that wouldn't have been covered by this the, this ruling. What it, what, well, what they're saying is, is it's an exceptional thing that tens of thousands of people mm. come over. Now, should they buy a net curtains? Well, again, it's one of those snobbery things. You know, posh people don't like net curtains, <laughs> and so they, they they're kind of saying you know there's no way. And actually, the judge even <laughs> refers to curtains because in previous rulings it has been suggested that maybe a pair of some some voils up at the window would would, would solve the whole issue, but it was. What's interesting is, you know, that we we see so much of this kind of, you know, all glass fronted architecture going on at the moment in in all of our cities. And that's why this this ruling is interesting, whether you live in Sydney or you live in New York York, or here in London, because... With that comes this fishbowl experience, and I've been, on, been in some of those buildings. So I, we were near where we used to live. There was a, a building where often on, on a Friday night you'd walk past and you see people having dinner and things. But quite often you'd walk past and people were walking around butt naked in their apartments as though nobody could see up. And actually, I don't know if they were particularly voyeuristic, but they didn't seem to kind of sense this. The, the you know the the dangers that came with purchasing one of these apartments. But I think on the other side, you know, ages ago we, we, we did a conference which which looked at the the, the idea of the, the the healthy healthy home, and this this notion of being constantly viewed I don't think is good for you. So maybe there's an argument that actually when we go to the planning stages of these things is, you know, is when when you put in these all glass you know frontages. You know, should people be warned that it will come with, a, with the risk that you'll be viewed and be seen unless you kind of go for the curtain? Do, do you need, surely you don't need a warning, it's common sense isn't it to a degree? Well it is common sense but then you think of like the standard hotel in New York which was this famous example they built this this hotel and they built the, 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 the toilets right up against the windows so again there was like if the papers were full of people who had shaken rather graphic pictures of people's appendages from uh, lower lower down and uh, y- you certainly knew more about their their bar attendees than you probably wanted to and also there was another case of people to, to, who voyeuristically just to pictures of people in their apartments in new york and and included people getting it on and again there was a, a kerfuffle but they were they were view they were viewable from the street and his his argument was well you know if you if you're you're throwing your your lives open in that way and, and and parading your wealth then i have the right to take a picture and then make art from it and then sell it in a gallery
0: just very briefly a lot of people have said well this sets a crazy precedent it's going to reframe the debates the narratives around placemaking and how we you know governance of sort of architectural planning and all the rest of it One of the things that's interesting about the way case law operates in this country is that it allows for some nuance, and you've already pointed out this idea that they've stressed this was an exceptional case. uh, Have some of the sort of uh, commentators been a bit quick to say, oh well this changes everything and now anybody can use this as a right to express nuisance from being overlooked, for example. It, It doesn't necessarily mean we're heading that far down the road
5: no it doesn't I, uh, and they uh, they've been explicit that is not the case and the, and don't just you know jump on the bandwagon and think that you can say that your neighbors you know, can't look into your your house and also you have to understand that there is this quid pro quo most people who live in urban places they understand this rear window moment you get to see people's lives in passing it's just whether you you loiter and put a viewing deck up to start taking pictures of what's going on
0: Uh, it's fascinating stuff Uh, that's monocle's editor-in-chief andrew tuck andrew thank you very much you're with the briefing here on monocle 24
5: tune in to monocle on culture where we grill our panel of critics to get the inside line on the best in the world of film music art literature and more
3: It's just got this synth section that kind of makes you want to swing through the saloon doors straight to the dance floor. I appreciate that some of the most brilliant art, most of it,
2: grounds you in this moment and makes you confront it.
5: With industry insiders and the odd bit of reportage too, it's bound to keep the most discerning of culture vultures very well fed.
1: Why'd You Come In Here Looking Like That is a song that is absolutely going to make you want to put on a pair of tight jeans and go boot scooting, even if it's just in
5: (laughs) your front room. Monocle on Culture, premiering Mondays at 20.00 London time, here on Monocle 24, and available thereafter wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Finally on today's programme, it simply would not be a Thursday without the dulcet tones of Monocle's own Fernando Augusto Pacheco talking us through the surely entirely non-dulcet global... Countdown. Fernando, <laughs> welcome. You're a vision in electric blue today.
1: I feel I should tell our listeners that. And I, I'm, I'm even going to try to do a joke, actually. I'm feeling the blues as well, oh. Tom, because it's it's going to be a little bit of a sad countdown, I'm sorry to say. It's a kind of lot of heartbreak uh, in this song. There's, Interesting. Where yeah. are we Where are we headed for this heartbreak experience? We are heading to Thailand, uh, which is a fascinating country. And actually, I, I didn't do much Thailand on a global countdown. So, The top five is full of local artists uh, and they quite like a little bit of rock as well. I mean, let's say if you're going to agree with me, if it's rock or not. uh, You know, I I know I was saying let's feel the blues and everything, but I think the number five is one of the most positive uh, of them all. I love the look of the singer. His name is Anas Sayokaze. The song is called Sun Lakaya. Let's have a listen so you can feel the vibe of Thai pop music.
3: กะมนวันทอดทอดๆใครก็รู้
1: it's all lovely tom because he's saying there's only one heart for you only everything's fine you know they're they're, they're in love
0: oh so there's no heartbreak there's no heartbreak. We're we're number five we're starting
1: on a very positive note and he looks cool i mean he looks very 70s with a kind of a mega huge perma hair some silk shirts <laughs> nice good dance moves as well it's it's good it's can good i look.
0: i'll throw this in there i don't feel that was rock
1: no, yeah. I, I would say that's definitely more pop. I think you should yes. have to wait a little bit more for rock.
0: To... I just want to make sure we're yes clear <laughs> on our on our definitions, Fernando. Uh, what does Because what was that ding, ding, ding part? Yeah, it's, do you know that? Or, like, I, I you think, don't have a full translation.
1: The translation, It felt like a love song, but when you look at the video, for me, it's kind of a bit of a comedy as well. So maybe okay. maybe it's a bit tongue in cheek, and I didn't actually <laughs> kind of notice that. Love uh, it, love is
0: comedic at times, isn't it, Fernando? Exactly. Can be depressive as well. Okay. Well, that made light the way we're headed <laughs> next. What's at number four?
1: He's kind of a Thai actor and singer as well. He's like a heartthrob. He's a very handsome uh, young man. His name is Jeff Satur with a very sad fade. <laughs> I mean, you don't need to wow. understand, Thai to see how sad he was. I don't want it to end. I pray I don't dream of you. That all the love songs don't remind me of you. Fernando, <sighs> I did want that song to end. I'm sorry to say it. <laughs> That's all fine. He's an actor as well, so he, can, so you he know. can... He can take robust criticism squarely on the chin. <laughs> exactly. He's currently on a series called King Porsche. So if you're interested, doing very well with, with young people. Check actually. him out. That's
0: Jeff. Um, not one for me, Fernando.
1: Maybe you can... Hit the spot with number three. Number three, that's a very nostalgic track. That's why it's set in a school. I mean, if you look at the video. And perhaps, I don't know if that's the clip we chose, but there's a little bit of Thai rap as well. Mm. It's not entirely hip-hop. There's touches of hip hop, touches of pop there. It's about the memories of youth of oh, f- this could be a good one <laughs> for of you. Your <laughs> first love. Let's have a listen to Ponyphone and Toner with Time Machine.
3: I could imagine that on a
0: in a John Hughes movie or something like that. Exactly.
1: It felt, it felt a bit kind of late 80s, 90s Very as well. Much. It's It's about the first love. He let it slip away. Oh. So I think he's regretting a little bit. That's kind of sad. Don't waste your energy with regret. No.
0: That's a bit of life advice for me <laughs> on, the, on the Global Countdown. Um, so that's my favorite so far, Time Machine. I enjoyed that. I felt like I was stepping back a few decades,
1: uh, not wishing to give away how many it might be today. <laughs> What's number two? <laughs> number two, I have to say that's my favorite one. It's it feels to me very dream pop. It's a bit melancholic, uh, very sad. They're doing very well. They're a young duo uh, from Thailand. I mean, they define themselves as pop rock, but I will be the judge of that. We'll be the judge of that. It's uh Sara with disappointing chosen broken flower. Cry- I do like this track. I mean, but it is desperate in a way, because it's like if I could make a wish, can someone please stay with me? Someone. Oh, dear. Anyone, really. Sort of Thai Sinead O'Connor vibes coming off that Yes, for me. yes. I, but it's beautiful. As I said, it reminds me of drink pop, like Marzi Star vibes from the uh, early 90s. Maybe, I don't know, if that's my A impression. question for you,
0: how do these some of these tracks and artists travel? Because that of the ones we've heard so far, that sounds like the one to me more likely to maybe... Breakthrough in potentially some some other markets. Uh, I don't
1: know what's what's the experience of some of these some of these acts. Some of it do travel. I don't know about Ryan Isara, but Jeff tour number four, uh, another very kind of tragic uh, love song. I know he's always on tour um, in Southeast Asia. I know he went to the Philippines, so clearly he, he's got a market there. Maybe we're going to hear more about T-pop uh, in the future as well. I mean, that's that's definitely could be uh, the new trend.
0: I like when you identify these trends ahead yeah. of
1: ahead of the curve.
0: Right? We have we already reached number one this is exciting what's at the top of the tree
1: that's the one you have to tell me if it's rock or not perhaps it's a bit like punk rock a little bit well okay (laughs) i'm gonna go out on a limb already and say definitely not but we could see it's for teenagers very 90s again it's paper planes this song has been a massive hit in thailand it's called bad boy let's have a listen.
0: What what was that? Was that that The Clash? No, it wasn't. Um, I'd say probably not punk rock for me, but I get the vibes. Even when he's
1: shouting a little bit.
0: Just just shouting isn't enough. There were suggestions from Behind the Glass in our control room
1: that it was Green Day. I I take offense at that, team Behind the Glass, personally. You know what I appreciate about the song? Because it's quite the opposite. Usually songs is about, oh, a girl wanting the bad boys. But actually he's complaining. Like, he's in love with a girl, but she doesn't like the bad boys. She likes the good guys. Uh, And and he doesn't like that. So he is a bad boy. He is a bad boy. He looks like a bad boy. But, you know, the girl, she she prefers like the preppies. And that's
0: the big smash hit what a breakout possibility for paper planes could they wing their way over to
1: a completely new market do you think absolutely but as i have to say for the teenagers right i think uh you know this song i think if you're over 18 i mean i don't know there are may- there might be many fans there but i'll stick with ryan Sarah number two that's my favorite i think i i mean i'm in the blue i've been feeling the blues Tom.
0: lovely stuff faye always a delight to have you on the show an excellent global countdown as always that is An excellent briefing, Uh, thanks to its producer, Paige Reynolds, our researcher, Andre Nikolai Pimentouin, and our studio manager, Callum McLean. Thanks, one and all. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's noon here in London, of course. But from me, Tom Edwards, and the Thursday team, goodbye, and thanks for listening.